All right, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his word this morning. Father, as we come before you, may we be challenged in our relationship with you. May we be encouraged in recognizing that you, as almighty God, care about us. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we look at your word, Lord, to, uh, to understand it, not just for knowledge's sake, but to apply the principles you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Ouch. A common expression when we suffer pain. We stub our toe. We say, ouch. Maybe something a little different, but usually ouch. When we hit our thumb with a hammer, ouch. When we come out of surgery, ouch. Pain. None of us enjoy pain. Some pain is chronic rather than an event. Some of you live each and every day with chronic pain. Ouch. But not only do we suffer physical pain, but suffering. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about suffering. And we've been looking over the last few weeks at at suffering as Peter goes through what some of those of his original audience that he wrote to in the first century in Asia Minor were facing. Now, when you feel pain, you can think about little else. You you have a hard time focusing on anything when you're hurting. And you're also, although it is helpful, you're not as concerned about an explanation of what's happening as relief. I'm sure some of you have been through that time where you're, you're going through something and, and you share it with someone and they go on, they've, they've read the internet so they know it all, and, and they go on and share a 10-minute dissertation on why you are feeling so miserable. And you want to say, well, thank you, but if you could give me at least 20 seconds on how I can feel better, that would be helpful. But how do we handle suffering? Peter shares in 1 Peter 3 some, some keys to how we can handle suffering in our lives. And, and he's, we've been looking at that and in the last verses of chapter 3. He shares the ultimate example of suffering. And that's Jesus Christ. Follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. It says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water." There is also an anti-type which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. These verses share Christ as our ultimate example. It begins there in verse 18 with the idea of also. That reminds us to go back and look what's taken place. And Peter had been encouraging them 
as they had fought through persecution and suffering in their lives to, to be able to be strong and courageous too, as we've talked about throughout this whole series, to stand firm no matter what the circumstances. And now he, he concludes this section by looking at Christ, the ultimate example, and, and we see some marks, four different marks of Jesus' path of suffering. And the climax of his suffering, and we see there in verse 18, is his crucifixion. 1 Peter 3, 18, the first part says this, 1 Peter 3, 18a, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. Jesus, the ultimate example of undeserved suffering. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweat great drops of blood as he prayed about the upcoming events over those next few days. He was arrested, he was falsely accused, he was tried improperly, he was forsaken by his followers, he was beaten, and then he was crucified. The ultimate of Christ's suffering took place on the cross. Oftentimes when we speak of pain, we use the term excruciating. And that actually comes from a base which, which literally means from the cross. The death on a cross was one of the most excruciating times of pain that could ever be imagined. It was so horrendous that Romans would not allow a Roman citizen to be crucified because they thought it was too inhumane. Now, conquered groups could, but not a Roman citizen. And Jesus suffered. He suffered on the cross. But we see some things about Jesus' suffering here in, 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 here in verse 18. It says he also suffered once. Jesus' sacrifice is a permanent sacrifice. In the Jewish laws, if you go back and look at the Old Testament, many of those sacrifices were made on a very regular basis, sometimes yearly, sometimes more often than that. They, were need, they needed to be made continually. And the sacrifice that I made, now some of them were for the whole nation, but some of them were for individuals or families. And, and my sacrifice that I made couldn't help the next person's sacrifice or the next family sacrifice if it was a family sacrifice it was called for. It is estimated that at Passover, up to one quarter million sheep were killed or sacrificed during a single Passover as the Jews came to Jerusalem to celebrate. But Jesus' sacrifice is permanent. He paid the price once for all. The sacrifice covers all of my sins and the sins from everyone in the entire world, past, present, and future. His sacrifice covers it all. It's a permanent sacrifice. But it was also a substitution. He died the just for the unjust, it goes on to say there. The perfect Son of God died for us. We are the unjust, but He, being without sin, took on our sins as He died. He is our substitute. 
You remember in school, since it's graduation Sunday, we'll talk a little bit about school here. You remember in school when the whole class was punished for the foolishness or the actions of one or two? You ever remember that? What was your first thought? Your first thought was, this isn't fair. Joe was the one who did it. You should think about Joe. He should be punished. Sorry, Joe, not not you. Of course, if you're not thinking that, you were probably one of the one or two, and everybody else was thinking about you, right? It's not fair. Why am I punished for something I did not do? I remember when I was in high school, we had study hall, and it was funny because study was in that, and I don't know how much actually got done. But, uh, but one of the things with study hall is the way our Belgrade High School was laid out. The, the library was right next to the room where we had study hall. So people could go over to the library and sit at the tables. And actually in the library, you could talk quietly. In study hall, you're not supposed to say a word. But uh, when you could go over to the library, you could talk quietly. It was great for me because I had some friends that were a lot smarter than I was. And so... The next class after our study hall was Algebra 2 and then Trigonometry. And so uh, depending on the year there, those two years that I was in that time frame. So anyway, what happened would we'd go over to the library. They'd go over to goof off. I mean, these guys, they would read the encyclopedia for fun. Yeah, they just, and you know, it, it probably took them about five or ten minutes to do their, their trigonometry homework. But, but I was in desperate need if, if I hadn't got it done, because I couldn't figure it out. And so if we went to the library, maybe I could get them to help me. And so we'd go over to the library and they'd proceed to goof off and I'd, be, I'd proceed to sweat and try to figure out these problems I couldn't get. And so I'd be trying to ask for their help and sometimes they would, sometimes they were too busy goofing off. And, but the study hall teacher was one of my coaches and unfortunately he knew me pretty well. So one of the things he would do is several times during study hall, he'd walk over to the library making sure it wasn't too noisy, and he'd come to our table, and this happened many times, he'd come to our table, and I was seriously studying, the rest of them were goofing off, and he'd say, this table is too noisy, Fennelson, back to study hall. This isn't fair. Why am I the one being picked on when I'm the one who's trying to do the right thing? It's hard when we feel we're unjustly punished or unjustly suffering. But Jesus Christ was the ultimate example of suffering unjustly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here in 1 Peter 3, Peter says, the just for the unjust. You see, our sin has separated us from God, and Jesus Christ is the only way that we can be brought back to a right relationship with God. John 14, 6, Jesus speaking says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ is our only way, our only hope. And as we look at at what took place at that crucifixion, some amazing things took place. 
If you read Matthew 27, it's also in Mark and Luke and John, some of the different aspects of it. But it says that, that it became dark from the sixth hour to the ninth. In the middle of the day, in the afternoon, it became dark as Jesus was on the cross. We see that, that there were many physical things that took place. Look what it says in Matthew 27:51. It says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. And we look at the last part of that and say, that must have been amazing. Here it's dark in the middle of the day. We have earthquakes and rocks splitting apart. And we oftentimes sort of just skip over that first part of verse 51 of Matthew 27. It says, the veil was torn in two. If you, if you don't know a lot about Jewish history and their religion, the temple obviously was the, was the pinnacle, was the focus of their worship. And in the pinnacle, they, they had a place called the Holy of Holies, which was the representation of the presence of God. And it was separated from the holy place in the other parts of the temple by this thick veil, a curtain. And no one could go into the presence of God. No one could go into the Holy of Holies. One time a year, the high priest was allowed to go in to make a special sacrifice. They actually, they tied a rope basically, a cord to his ankle. So if he went in there and he was ceremonially unclean, he would immediately die in the presence of God, but no one could go in to get him so they could pull him out with the rope. And the people would, would have to go to God through the priests. But because of the secret, because of the sacrifice, excuse me, of God, we have access to God. The veil was torn in two. Because of Christ's sacrifice, we have access. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope and the glory of God. Notice a few things in those verses. We have been justified by faith, and because of that, we can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We have access into his grace and we have hope because of what Jesus Christ has done. You see, the very worst thing that did happen, man choosing to condemn and kill the perfect son of God, became the very best thing that could happen. An opportunity for our relationship with God to be restored. The very worst thing that did happen, Jesus Christ being unjustly tried, convicted, and crucified, became the very best thing that did happen or could happen if we give our lives to Jesus Christ. So we see the crucifixion, but, but Peter also talks about a proclamation in the last part of verse 18 through verse 20. It says this, 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 18, says, But made alive by the Spirit, Jesus who had been dead in the flesh, but alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, who once, the, or when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now, 
when going through a passage of Scripture as a Bible study leader, as a speaker, a pastor, there's, there's a couple reasons you don't want to cover a section. Two main reasons. One is because the passage is hard to understand. And so you say, okay, whether I'm leading a Bible study or speaking to a congregation, whatever it is, we're going to get here and I'm going to just get this blank look because I don't know what it's saying. And so you say, how can we skip over this part? The second reason you may want to skip over a part is because it's asking you to do something that's really hard to do. Guess what? This passage and in particular these couple verses fit both. This is really hard to understand. There's people a lot smarter than me that have debates back and forth on what does this mean? I mean, okay, so the days of Noah, Jesus speaking to spirits in prison, what's going on here? And the whole passage is hard. Suffering for Christ. Not a fun thing to look forward to. So I had a debate. What was I going to do? Do we just sort of read that passage and jump into the next one? It talks about the resurrection, which is a pretty cool thing. And, or take a couple minutes and try to wade through it. And I said, let's head to the resurrection. But I knew you guys would say, no, we want to wade through it. So we would have got out five minutes early. We're not going to because we're going to try to wade through it. So sorry about that. But what is Peter saying? And by the way, oftentimes we spend a great deal of time on parts of Scripture that we will never fully understand. This is one of those. So I'm going to give you some ideas. But oftentimes we can get way off course when we focus on those things that we can't truly understand. Some of them we're never going to understand until we get to heaven. And by the way, when we get to heaven, I don't think we're going to be that care. I don't think we're going to care that much about the answer. <laughs> we're going to be too busy worshiping Christ. But I don't want you to get out early, so let's try to figure this out a little bit. What, what is he saying here? This is a proclamation given by Christ, but we have to ask ourselves a few questions. When was it given? To whom it was given? And, and what did the proclamation say? Now, the most logical time of the proclam uh, that the proclamation was given was between Christ's death and resurrection. We see in, in there in verse 18, it says he was put to death in the flesh, but alive in the spirit. And so that time frame between the crucifixion and the resurrection would be a logical time when this proclamation was given. That's probably the easiest part of this. But he was put to death by the, in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. What does it mean to be made alive by the Spirit? Some would say, well, that's the Holy Spirit. And that could be correct. However, the Greek grammar does not help us. It doesn't give us capital letters. You know, when you have a proper name, it's always capitalized. Well, the Greek language is a little different than the English language, so we don't get that benefit. And also, definite articles are, are, are hard to figure out. Was it the Holy Spirit or just in spirit? And we can't know for sure. So, was the Holy Spirit involved? Probably, but was Peter emphasizing that the Holy Spirit's or emphasizing the Holy Spirit's involvement? 
Or was it just the fact that while Jesus was dead physically, he was still spiritually alive? And for us, we know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, he was alive in spirit. And so during this time, he gave a message to the spirits. Who were the spirits? Some would say that he was speaking to those people who rejected Noah's warning of judgment at the time of the flood. And they, for 120 years, were given opportunity to repent, but chose to ignore Noah's warning, and they were judged. But whenever spirit is used in the Old Testament, in all other cases, it seems to be emphasizing the spirit world, the idea of angels and demons, and who were these spirits? Those who were part of Satan's group that rebelled against God. Which one was it? It's hard to know. But the most important part of this is what was the message? The message was a proclamation of Christ's victory, victory over sin, victory over death, victory over Satan. Picture it when Satan and his angels, or what were they doing when Jesus Christ was crucified? Now, Satan is very wise, but he's not all-knowing. He is very powerful, but he's not all-powerful. And for Satan to have Jesus Christ crucified, he and, the, he and the demons were probably having a great celebration. We won. He's dead. But Jesus Christ had a much more powerful reason for allowing himself to be killed and God the Father for having his son crucified. Why? Because it brought us hope of restoration of a relationship with God that had been broken by sin. And so while Satan was celebrating, Jesus went to share that Satan wasn't the victor. Jesus Christ was, and we have hope. You see, what was the worst thing could become the best thing. The worst thing that did happen became the very best thing that could happen. And then we see the resurrection in verse 21. There is also an anti-type which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This brings us to another difficult portion of the passage. What is the purpose of baptism? And there's a key, when, when try, and, and it's not just in Scripture, but obviously we're looking at the Bible here, but, but in anything, when, when you're trying to figure something out, look what is clear. Look what you know for sure. I attempt to help my daughter in algebra, and that's sort of humorous if she knew what I went through in high school in algebra and in the library. But um, so I, I try to help her, and, and so and and she has those problems where you've got to do, you got to figure it out, and proofs and things like that. You know, algebra and geometry stuff like that, right? You remember those? What's the first thing you start with? what you know for sure. 
when you're doing a proof. It's called a given. All right, this is given. You know this. So when looking at this, what is the purpose of baptism? And Peter talking about baptism, but not the removal of filth from the body, but instead a clear conscience or a good conscience toward God. What's he talking about? Well, what do we know? If you look throughout Scripture, you'll see how is a person come into a relationship with Jesus Christ? How do they trust Jesus Christ as their Savior? It's through God's work, not my work. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Titus 3, 5, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So any action, any work that I do cannot get me to heaven. Being better than my neighbor doesn't cause Peter's to sit at the gate. By the way, that's not biblical either, but to say, oh yeah, you were pretty good. Come on in. No. Isaiah 64, verse 6, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. The best that we have is garbage. So, we know that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not doing something myself, it's trusting what Jesus Christ has done for me. Recognizing that the very worst thing that did happen became the very best thing that could happen. So, what is baptism? And why do we make a big deal about baptism? Well, baptism is a public confession of our faith. We have to understand, when does baptism occur? If you look throughout the New Testament, people were saved. They put their faith in Jesus Christ, and then they were baptized. It's an action of a person who has already trusted Christ. It's also passive. You aren't baptizing, you're baptized. Which you say, well, okay, what's big about that? The idea of it's not some action I'm doing to earn this. So it's a passive activity. I'm being baptized. So what is the key to our salvation? Well, Peter shares in this verse, the key to our salvation is the answer of a good conscience toward God. That word answer can also mean pledge. It was a legal term. When one agrees to the conditions of a contract, and oftentimes what they would do is, is they would be required to stand and say, I will do my part. They would commit to their actions. I know we have a, a couple of young couples here just about ready to get married. And you're going to stand before a pastor, and they are going to say, repeat after me the following words, and you make the pledge. But, but they also have what they call the declaration of intent. All right? You want to practice this, by the way. And uh, your response to their statement is, I do, or I will. Sometimes people will use that instead, who grew up in a house with an English teacher. I will or I do. That's a commitment. And this good conscience 
that Peter's speaking of has the answer of a good conscience toward God. The idea of, I am committing. What am I committing? I am committing to fulfill my condition. What is my condition? Any work that I can do? No, my condition is to trust Christ. Repentance and faith. So what is baptism? Why is it important? Baptism, again, is a public confession of our faith. Why should a person be baptized? Why is it important? Well, there are two important reasons to be baptized. We're baptized in obedience to Christ. Jesus Christ said, be baptized. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, and also found in the other Gospels and in, in, in Acts chapter 1, too. But the Great Commission, baptizing one another, right? We're to be baptized. We're to obey Christ in that step of obedience. And then Christ even emphasized it even more by giving us an example. We see in Matthew chapter 3 where, where Jesus himself was baptized. Not that he needed to be baptized, but he did it as an example for us. Pretty powerful picture of the, the triune God. There's, there's other parts of it too, but, but he did it as an example for us. Jesus Christ has called us to be baptized. Why else is it important? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an identification with Christ. We identify with him. We identify with his death, burial, and resurrection. As we're put into the water and brought out, we are publicly declaring that we are trusting Christ, that we are a follower of Christ. We identify with him. And, and today, in the United States of America, that may not seem like that big of a deal. But think about the first century when those people who, who identified with Christ, many of them were persecuted or even rejected by their family and others around them. And so for them to make that public declaration took incredible faith, trusting God as they identified with him. So if you're here this morning or watching online and you say, you know, well, I've trusted Christ as my Savior. My salvation is in Christ, but you've never been baptized. I would encourage you to consider that step of obedience and that step of identification with Christ. And we would love to celebrate with you that incredible step of obeying God. And then verse 21 ends by reminding us that salvation is possible not just because of Christ's crucifixion, but because of the resurrection. You see, Christ's salvation activity did not end on Friday when Christ was crucified. It ended as he rose again and ultimately when he will come again. With the resurrection, not only do we have victory over sin, but we have victory over death and Christ is the ultimate victor and we will rule and reign with him. Our hope comes from Christ becoming our, or being our substitute. But it doesn't end there. He rose again to show his power over death and to give us victory. 
Romans 8:18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We, we wonder what heaven will be like. That song, I love that song, I can only imagine. You know, what's it going to be like? There are things I want to say, well, I think it'll be this. But we can't picture it. It'll be more amazing than we in our finite man, minds can ever think. <clears throat> but I know some things that the scripture says will not be in heaven. There won't be Kleenex in heaven. And you say, no, no, no. Where did you get that? Well, it's in hesitations. No, it's not. But, but I know there won't be Kleenex in heaven. Why? Because look at some of the other things that won't be in heaven. And this isn't a complete list, but a partial list of things not found in heaven. There will be no tears. There will be no sorrow. There will be no pain. There will be no sickness. There will be no death. Pretty much the reasons why you have Kleenex. So there will be no Kleenex in heaven. And because of Jesus Christ, we can have the hope of eternity with him, which leads us to verse 22, the exaltation. Verse 22 says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. You see, 40 days after his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. He had humbled himself Philippians chapter 2 says he became obedient unto death, even death on the cross, but it doesn't end there in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 2. It goes on in verses 9 and following and says that Jesus Christ will be exalted. And we know that he will have all authority and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The exaltation. You see, Jesus suffered in his crucifixion but the story isn't just the suffering and the crucifixion. It includes the hope of his proclamation of victory over Satan, sin, and death. It includes the power of the resurrection as he has victory and his position of exaltation. But what about in our life? You know, it's so important not just to learn scripture for knowledge, but how does it change the way I live? What's going to happen when I go to work tomorrow morning? Am I going to live differently because of Christ's promises from 1 Peter 3? Well, the biggest thing, my benefit of Christ's suffering, the benefit of Christ's suffering for me. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says this, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ died for me. And it's amazing how it says there, the author of Hebrews says, For the joy that was set before him. Not the joy of the suffering, but the joy of our salvation as he provided the sacrifice for us. And every day of my life should be different as I think about what Jesus Christ has done for me. But what about my suffering? I mean, obviously, Christ's suffering is a life and an eternity changer. But how about my suffering? You may be here this morning or you may be watching this morning and, and you are suffering and you're trying to do the right thing and it seems like you're, you're unjustly suffering. 
I mean, you just, things are hard. It's, it's not fair. How can I benefit when I suffer? Now, I don't look forward to suffer. I don't glory in suffering. But I can know that God can work out my suffering for his and my benefit. I need to recognize that God is working. He's working in my suffering. James chapter 1 reminds us that he is molding and maturing us. We know that throughout our suffering, he is guiding us. Psalm chapter 23, a passage we use often during times of loss. In verse 4, it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That shepherd that guides the sheep, that protects the sheep, that is there with the sheep. In the midst of your suffering, God is there with you. He guides you. He protects you. And so we know that he guides us and he walks with us in the midst of the dark valley. So as Peter was talking to those people in first century Asia Minor and as he's speaking to us in 21st century Helena, Montana, God is with us through it all and we have the ultimate example of suffering in Jesus Christ and the ultimate hope because of that suffering. But also in the midst of our suffering, we can be encouraged in God's faithfulness and we can trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness, for your love. Lord, I thank you that as almighty God, you care about me more than I can imagine. And Lord, that you love me when I fail you and you walk with me when I'm discouraged. Lord, help me to trust you in every heart and aspect of my life and Lord help us to celebrate salvation that we can have in you Lord we pray that you would guide us today Lord we know you will but that we would be open to your guidance and that we would look to you as our strength our hope and our comfort We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.